Let me, let me, share, a, let me share a quote with you. Uh, I've no doubt that a number of you will, will recognize it. It's part of a speech. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, it cuts through, it captures the sense of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all its forms, greed for life, for money, for love, for knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. And greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Who can tell me where it comes from and who said it? Wall Street, very impressive, said by Gordon Gecko, played by... What is that going on in the background? <laughs> right, now, hang on a minute, just to, be, just to be clarify this before this gets out of order. That's the film from last week, isn't it? Where's Pete Cunningham? Turn the sound off on the PC. <laughs> Talk among yourselves again, please. Talk among idea how that happened, but he's dead. (laughs) Uh, I'm pretty sure most of us would want to take uh, issue with the idea that greed is good and is right, but some people, some people might want to argue that uh, without some element of greed, some element of greed, the economy and human progress would all grind to a halt. When you think about it, as far as some people are concerned, a certain level of greed is Essential, And therefore, of, of all of the seven deadly sins, it's not hard to see why this one is often perceived as the most socially acceptable. Even applauded at a certain level. And that's despite the whole banker's bonus thing that has been part of our society for quite a number of years. But just to quote right up front, something that Jesus Christ said, our our ultimate reference point, our ultimate source of teaching. We must be on our guard against all kinds of greed. And and I'll come back to that later. Now, as we get into this, I think it's really important to make the point, although I I don't want to get too distracted by this point, but there is a distinction. I want you to think about this with me. There is a distinction between self-interest, ambition, and greed. Now, I know I'm not going to be able to to do this justice, but self-interest, a healthy form of self-interest, is what? Well, it is the responsibility to look after ourselves and also to look after those who depend upon us, who look to us to provide for them. 
And there may be a number of people here, and and that kind of is where you're at. That's what your current circumstances dictate. And that we all have certain obligations to provide for others, to provide for our families. And that's a necessary thing. And so there is is something called healthy self-interest. And ambition. Well, ambition is surely primarily a positive thing. In fact, it's an admirable thing to want to do well and to strive for something, strive to get somewhere. But at what point does self-interest and ambition become greed? Greed is very different from both of those things. Greed consumes Greed is never satisfied. Healthy self-interest and ambition will generally allow most of us to know a certain level of contentment at times. But whenever greed kicks in, whenever it takes hold, whenever it entices and captures, we're always left what? We're always left with greed, wanting more and more and more. We never reach a place of thinking, do you know, I now have enough. There is always this nagging sense of disappointment and dissatisfaction. We might get this, but the truth is we want that. And we want more of it. And as we look around us, we we see it. But not only as we look around us do we see it, if we're honest, we, we feel it deep within us. That car, that that mobile phone, that TV would do okay. It would be totally adequate. But greed stimulates the desire for, no, I I want better. I want more. I want bigger. I want faster. I want the latest. And so greed affects the young, the old, and everyone in between. But how would you define greed? Let me get you to do something. I want you to just complete this sentence. Greed is what? Greed is what? Wanting what you don't need. Thanks, Patricia. Anyone else want to offer a completion of that? Coveting. Thank you. Greed is selfish. Thanks, Liam. Anything else? Never being satisfied. Thanks, Roy. Let me give you a couple of dictionary definitions. Greed is an intense and selfish desire for something, especially wealth and power. Or it's the inordinate love of money and of material possessions. And in this bit I think is interesting, the dedication of oneself to their pursuit. That's the dictionary definitions. And you see, like all vices, like each of the deadly sins, greed breeds internally. It's a heart issue. And so it eats away at your soul, but there's also and always an external expression because greed might be an internal problem, but greed never stays hidden. It reveals itself in an excessive acquisition and a retention of money and possessions. It's about being too attached to cash and material goods. And remember, it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. 
And so greed corrodes the inner man or woman. It is unpleasant. It makes us miserable. Think Ebenezer Scrooge. It leaves us dissatisfied, never satisfied. And it is, greed always is, potentially destructive. Many people uh, have seen the film The Aviator. It's quite a few years old now. A number of you have. It's a story of billionaire uh, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, but it's a story of billionaire Hard Hughes. And some would say, some of you might know quite a lot about this guy, but some people would say he provides the perfect and striking case study of what greed can do to a person. I'm not sure if you can make out what it says at the bottom of this poster advertising the film, but what it actually says is, imagine a life without limits. You see, his life became this obsession to have more and more and more, and so he wanted more money, and he gambled inherited wealth into a billion-dollar pile of assets. He wanted more fame, and so he went to Hollywood, became a filmmaker and star. He wanted more sensual pleasures, and so he paid handsome sums to indulge his every hedonistic urge. He wanted more thrills, so he designed, he built, and he piloted the fastest aircraft in the world. He wanted more power, so he secretly dealt political favors so skillfully that two U.S. presidents were said to become his pawns. All hard Hughes ever wanted, it is believed, was more and more. And yet, he ended his life emaciated and colorless. His fingernails, and I'm just quoting, resembled grotesque corkscrews that were inches long. His teeth went black and rotten, and innumerable needle marks covered his body from his drug addiction. He walked around nearly naked most of the time towards the end of his life with his beard and hair to his waist. He lived in darkness. He wore rubber gloves. He sterilized everything in his junk-filled room. He spent most of his time watching old movies and drinking soup. And he was so lonely that he talked on the phone for 10 to 15 hours a day. And one commentator looking at his life said this. His life shows the truth of that old Latin proverb, He who covets is always poor. It's an extreme example. I know it is, but you see the consequences of greed often are exactly that. Extreme. Now before we look a little closer at the personal and relational impact of greed, I I do want to make the point that greed threatens to destroy our world. We've heard a lot recently about corporate greed. St. Paul's Cathedral. Eric sang about it. And I'm sure lots of us have different thoughts on this whole concept, but let me read one other comment about how greed let loose is threatening to destroy our very planet. And I realize this is a, it's a huge issue, this, but I do believe it's worth mentioning as we think of greed. Our desire for a richer and more extravagant way of life will keep eating up the rainforests, the coal deposits, the ozone layer. We probably have passed the point of no return on global warming, thinks some, with all its potentially disastrous effects on ice flows, sea levels, deserts. The environmental devastation of the past few centuries is a classic example of the effects of greed. A legitimate desire for prosperity, efficiency and technology pursued without limits. And here's the issue. Or regard for the effect on the planet has given us what we deserve. This planet is our home, but it threatens to become our grave. It's an open question how long our planet can survive greed. 
back to the personal dimension. But Because one of the difficulties we face whenever we talk about this subject, and I must admit I've really wrestled with this during the week, is trying to determine or discern what counts as excessive. When is enough enough? What does legitimate self-interest and ambition, where does that actually stop and then grade the deadly sin of greed? Where does that begin? Is there a line you cross? Where is that line? How do you decide where that line is? I suppose one of the telltale signs of greed is that instead of simply always buying or getting what we need, we find ourselves driven by what we want. I want more. So instead of necessity, we constantly crave luxury. It's not that luxury is always wrong. Remember, there is a place for feasting as well as fasting, as we thought about last week. But whenever the wanting more and wanting bigger and wanting faster and wanting better and wanting the latest just for the sake of it or because we think, well, that will make me happier. Whenever that dictates our decisions and choices and drives us, then surely this has become an issue that needs to be addressed. James Twitchell defines a luxury as something we absolutely do not need. And greed may have become a reality whenever we find ourselves surrounded by a horde of things we absolutely do not need. And another danger with greed and why it's so deadly is that it causes us to try to find and locate and pursue our satisfaction in what? In money and in possessions instead of the true source of satisfaction. Graham Tomlin writes this, Greed tries to satisfy the restless soul with things that were never meant to satisfy it. Let's be really honest. What is it? that we are looking to to satisfy the restlessness that's within us. Whenever our relationship with money and possessions trumps our relationship with God, whenever God is eclipsed by the competing God of money, and remember the Bible explicitly says, listen, you cannot, you cannot serve two masters. Whenever our waking hours are consumed by thoughts of, well, what do I want next? How am I going to get it? And yet when I look at the time I invest into my personal relationship with God, I realize, you know, there's an imbalance here. And whenever that is the case, then I want to suggest that greed may have become a very clear and present danger. See, back to Luke 12, where Jesus warns about the, the dangers of greed. Let me finish what Jesus said. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And Jesus then goes on to tell the parable of the rich fool. Who just kept accumulating more and he tore down his existing storehouses in order to construct bigger ones. Why? Well, so that he could possess more. So that he could accumulate a surplus way beyond what he needed. But there was a glaring problem. And this is such a current reality and one of the core dangers of greed. This man invested so much in getting personally and materially rich and having more that he neglected to attend to what really mattered. He neglected his spiritual well-being. 
He neglected his relationship with God. He neglected the need to prepare for eternity. And so listen as Jesus finishes the story. And these are hard words, but here's what Jesus says. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life is going to be demanded of you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be, says Jesus, for those who store up for themselves things but are not rich towards God. Another biblical perspective, eternal truth. What good is it? If you gain more and more and more, in fact you gain the whole world and yet you lose your soul in the process. And I wonder, are we in a time and in a culture and a context where actually we are just surrounded by people who are on a regular basis losing their souls? As someone has provocatively stated, death always gets the last laugh over greed. Greed promises that material well-being will deliver much more than material well-being ever can deliver. It lies to us. Yes, there's often a thrill in getting what you want. I mean, there is. There is a thrill in getting that thing that I want. I don't need it. No, I don't need it. But I want it. I'm going to get it. It's great. But then the feeling soon passes. Fades. And the restlessness kicks in again and I've got to have more. So how do we confront this this face? How do we face up to it? How do we be honest with ourselves and before God? Well, to start with, I want to recognize that this is a massive challenge. I think this is one of the most pressing challenges we face in our culture and our time. And the reason, very simply, is this. We live in such a materialistic, consumerist society where we are pummeled every single day with advertising that prompts us and tells us, you can have more, you should have more, you need better, you can update to the latest. I shop, therefore I am. And Jesus might have said, listen, your life doesn't consist in abundance of possessions, but our culture conditions us to see it very differently, that life does actually consist in the abundance of your possessions. And the pressure we and our young people are under is intense. It's a huge issue. And so what I I want to try to do, and and I really hope this doesn't come across uh, sort of judgmental in any way, because as I often say, I, I, I have found preparing for some of these incredibly challenging. As like, for example, I'm due an upgrade on my phone. <laughs> I hate it when things happen in that sort of timing perspective. <laughs> and, and so I do want to try to offer just some advice. And the, the advice I want to offer, first of all, is to do with perspective. And then I want to talk a little bit bit about the virtue that we must and should pursue if we're going to overcome this deadly sin. And then finally, I want to suggest a discipline, a discipline that can help us on this journey. It's it's kind of the framework we've been using. So, okay, let's think about perspective for a moment. One uh, One of the key issues for us as Christians and as the people of God is to remember that everything we have, everything we have ultimately comes from above. That every breath we take, every morsel of food we eat, every sip of water we drink is a pure gift from the hands and the heart of a loving God. 
And so everything we have needs to be seen as a gift. That's where it starts. And from there, we then need to grasp the radical teaching of Jesus that says, in real terms, actually, you don't own anything. You've got to learn to give back the gifts that you have been given. Luke 14, Jesus says this, In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything cannot be my disciple. Now, how do we process that? I mean, how, how do I hear that and apply that to my life? Now, if you take it literally, it probably just about rules out all of us from Christian discipleship. Because I, for one, have not given up all my possessions. Not in the sense that immediately comes to mind. And what would happen if everybody did? Who would own what was left? Who would we then depend on to feed us and provide roof over our heads? Can't be literal. Can't be. So what did Jesus mean? Well, perhaps it's this, and I encourage you to take this away and and reflect on it further. That whenever you genuinely become a follower of Jesus Christ, you do give up everything. We reach a place of acknowledging that nothing I possess belongs to me. I, I give it over. It's yours. I give it back to its rightful owner. And I increasingly appreciate that anything I do have is a gift and I have it on loan and therefore ultimately every single one of us is a steward of what we own, what we have, what we possess, what we earn. We're stewards of it. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, that's what it means to give up everything. And so true disciples hold stuff really lightly. They recognize they're simply looking after money and possessions. They don't own them. But what we do is we get to use them for God's purposes and to bless others. Rebecca de Young puts it like this. To claim all that is ours as the gifts of God for the people of God is to relearn and rediscover a creation to be gratefully celebrated rather than consumed by greed. See, we need a fre- I need a fresh perspective. I need to take on board the radical teaching of Jesus. That everything I have ultimately comes from above. Everything I have I need to give up. Because it's only mine on loan. I need to be a good steward of it. I need to work out how can I use it for God's purpose. How can I use what I have to bless others. And then that leads us to the virtue. Because what is the virtue that, that flows out of that fresh perspective? And in Christian thinking the counterpart is not poverty. As some think. But it's generosity. We are called to be generous people. Listen to Paul's words to Timothy. Command those who are rich. So it's okay. I mean, we know the Bible isn't against being rich. But command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. How true is that? But to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for for our enjoyment. That's back to that fresh perspective. God gives it to us for our enjoyment. Then Paul goes on and says this. Command them to do good. 
To be rich in good deeds. And to be generous and willing to share. Like, it's just such practical teaching. You see, the Bible does not reel against the possession of wealth. It reels against the hoarding of it. Money isn't the problem. The love of it is. We are not told to become poor, but we are told to be generous. And that involves a revolution of the heart. Where giving, not grasping, becomes a way of life. Generosity is not about volume. It's about attitude. It is not necessarily expressed in the amount you give, but it is discovered in the way you give. It's the manner of giving that reveals the inner desires and the attachment of every single one of us. The way we give, the manner we give. The widow in Luke 21 is a prime example to consider. She gave her last two copper coins out of devotion to the Lord. And Jesus commands her, you know, her coins couldn't have bought a single church bulletin. But even in her poverty, her love and devotion made her willing to give. You see, the mark of generosity is not the size of the gift, the wealth of the giver, but it's the readiness to give what one does have back to God. Someone's put it, I guess. A mark of having a virtue is the way it becomes a natural part of who we are. So that giving is delightful. It's not an onerous duty or a dull chore. The test of liberality, another word for generosity, is whether giving things away is easy and enjoyable. Do you know what, what, what sometimes makes my giving painful? This is back to perspective. It's the feeling that the money I give is mine. When we become greedy, when I become greedy, giving will always be painful. And that's different from sacrificial. But it actually becomes painful. So what is the discipline? This is the pattern we've been following this series uh, for those who've been here each week. So first week we looked, pride was the vice, humility is the virtue, confession and service are the disciplines. Envy is the vice, the virtue is contentment. The discipline is gratitude. Anger is the vice. The virtue is peace. The discipline is silence. Gluttony is the vice. The virtue self-control. The discipline is fasting. And so if greed is the vice, generosity is the virtue, then what's the discipline? Well, let me suggest maybe a rather strange one. Sabbath. Sabbath is a crucial antidote for greed because it is a regular weekly reminder that the purpose of life is not my career, it's not work, it's not money, it's not deals, it's not degrees, it's not all those things we fret over, but it is the enjoyment of God and the good things that he has given us. You see, Sabbath is so much more, and I know we did a whole series on this, but Sabbath is so much more than a mere day off to recuperate, to recover from a busy week, or to prepare for another busy week that lies ahead. Sabbath is about rest. Sabbath is about ceasing. It's about not doing, not organizing, not achieving, but simply about being. Greed makes it hard for us to do this. Because you see, the voice of greed inside tells us that there's a lot to do. There's more to get. 
done and organized. We've got to achieve more. We've got to accumulate more. We've got to keep working. We've got to keep busy. But this Sabbath thing, this discipline, it's not just a day. It's an attitude, I know. But it actually says, slow down. Stop. Inhale. Worship. Pause. Consider. Meet with others. Remember. Reflect. Rejoice. The discipline of Sabbath is essential. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. But let me suggest one final thing. Here's, here's, a, here's a challenge to throw out. What about taking a Sabbath rest from consumerism? Just a thought. But for at least a month, try staying away from the shops, apart from to buy essentials. What about not looking at catalogues, magazines, or online websites that entice us to spend for one month? What about limiting our exposure to advertising, and if that means going on a fast from TV for one month, then why not try it? Do you know something? If we did it, if I did it, I may well be shocked at how jaded I've become to the daily assault of marketing that is designed to inflame the desire to possess beyond all reasonable measure. Do I possess beyond all reasonable measure? Yes, I do. And Jesus says, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in abundance of possessions. For the sake of our well-being, for the sake of our well-being at every single level, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, for the sake of our world, for the sake of our planet, that advice from our master needs to be embraced. It needs to be taken on board. Yes, this sin is deadly. But it can be confronted if I gain a right perspective on money and possessions. It can be confronted if I become known for my generosity. For I'm known as a person who gives and gives gladly and shares what I have. And also it can be confronted via the regular discipline of Sabbath. Sabbath rest in my life. Let's pray as we close. Father, we do uh, come before you this evening and we, we recognize and accept that we do live in a, in a world that really does encourage us to want more. In a culture and in a society that's, that says enough is never enough. And your word says that uh, we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind and we're not to let our culture squeeze us into its mold and yet it's so hard, God. And particularly when it comes to money and possessions, it is so hard and we want to look after ourselves and we want to look after those who depend upon us and we do want to have ambition, God, and yet knowing where these lines are and where we cross a line is, is, is tough. And so we sit before you this evening and we allow you to search our hearts and I allow you to search my heart, God. And if this is an area where, where I have got things out of proportion, out of perspective, then I ask you to help me to make wise choices this week with regard to to becoming more and more generous. You are a generous God. And you've invited us to reflect that characteristic in our lives. So I pray for each person here 
Again, God, anything that I've said that has, has just been mere opinion may be quickly forgotten. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.